I want to ask you to open your Bible with me to the book of Philippians chapter 3. Our text today is Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. But before we read it, I'm sure that you recognize, as I do, that everyone has to sell themselves sooner or later. I wonder how you would do at selling yourself. When we're young, we learn to display our finer qualities to the people we want to be friends with so that they will like us. It's part of how we learn to interact with people around us and that way we sort of sell ourselves. When we try out for the basketball team in middle school or high school, we attempt to display our very best skills to the coach in hopes that we'll make the team. When you start dating, you work hard to look good, sound good, smell good, and do good with the hopes that the person you have your eye on will also have their eye on you. And as we build upon our careers, we write and then rewrite and then rewrite the resume. That brief document in which we attempt to cram in every meaningful aspect of our history, experience, competencies, character, in an attempt to convince the hiring manager to say, you are good enough to have this job. All of us want to present the best version of ourselves. All of us sell ourselves in some ways. And that's not necessarily sinister. That's just part of human interaction. But what about God? What happens when we try to present the best version of ourselves to God? Can we sell ourselves to him? And in that selling, will that motivate him in a certain way to receive us? In Philippians chapter 3, Paul is addressing the church about the teaching of a group of people called the Judaizers. The Judaizers were Jews who recognized Jesus as the Messiah, but were still following the Old Testament law. And as such, they were imposing that law on new Christians, in a sense, making them become Jewish before they could become Christians. And one of the ways they were doing that by, was by requiring them to be circumcised, which was the sign of the Old Testament covenant with God's people. And as a result, these Judaizers would have a certain amount of confidence in their flesh, their ability to stand before God because of what they had done. They had done the right things. And in one sense, they thought we all had to present ourselves to God in such a way so that he would accept us based on our following of certain religious rituals and the law. At the interview of heaven, we needed a strong resume. And so Paul responds with his resume, which is way better than yours. Listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 3. We'll start at verse 2. He says, Look out for the dogs, for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship 
by the Spirit of God and and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And we'll stop there. You know, some of my favorite passages in the Bible are some of the hardest passages to preach for me personally. And this is one of them. And the reason why is because it oozes with so much desire and passion for the Lord. It's a desire that I have deep in my bones But I fear that the passion that is there is such that I'm unable to communicate it adequately with words. (laughs) Passion, worth, value, aspiration. These are the things that are dripping from the words of Paul as he considers the glory of Jesus Christ and the importance of of the center of the gospel, which is justification by faith. And we see that he displays what confidence in the the wrong credentials could look like. Last week, we talked about access to God. This week, we talk about confidence in standing before God. And what kind of confidence could or should we have? Well, he gives a sevenfold list of spiritual credentials that show the apostle to be far superior to anyone who has confidence in themselves. Look at it with me. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. His parents were followers of the old covenant, which meant he was too. This shows that he was not merely a convert from the outside who came in. He wasn't a Gentile that became a Jew. He was an insider of the people of God. He was there among God's people from day one. His body bore the mark of the covenant. He was of Jewish descent, he says. Paul's parents weren't pagan converts either. They too were Jews. Racially, he was pure-blooded in that regard. He says that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. 
That is the tribe that descended from Jacob, Rachel, the tribe that Moses called the beloved tribe of the Lord, the tribe of which the first king of Israel came, who was named King Saul. And you might remember that before his conversion, Paul bore the name Saul. He was named after the first king. Furthermore, this tribe was the only one of, the two, only one of two tribes that did not rebel against King David's dynasty. If you were from the tribe of Benjamin, you had the right last name. You were of the right type of stock. And history bore that out. Next, he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews, immersed in the Jewish culture. He understood his heritage. He was educated in Jerusalem under the famous rabbi Gamaliel. Acts 22 tells us. It's like saying he attended all the finest private schools and he knew all the right people. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And so you look at the first four features of the resume and you say the status and privileges that Paul had were largely statuses and privileges that he inherited. He came from the right stock. But the next three things are the things that he earned. So he says, as to the law, a Pharisee. Within the different sects or segments of Judaism, the Pharisees were the most strict. They were the ones who were disciplined and respected. There were only about 6,000 of them throughout the known world. The Pharisee means separated one. And they kept themselves clear from the unclean people. And they associated only with Jews who observed the law. He was a Pharisee. And as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, we know that in the early formation of the Christian church, before Paul encountered Jesus, he persecuted the church and had converts to Jesus killed. But this was not in the name of some bloodlust. This was a zealous attempt to preserve what he thought was sound doctrine. He thought the Christians were a cult. <laughs> he thought the Christians were blaspheming God. And so to keep purity, he oversaw the execution of believers. Paul didn't go halfway. He wasn't moderately interested in his religion. He went all the way. And lastly, he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul doesn't say that he was sinless. He <laughs> doesn't say he was perfect. But he does say blameless. He lived as an example to the people around him to see on the occasion that he did sin, he made all the required sacrifices under the law to continue in his blameless state. And so, listen to it again. If anybody has confidence, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's the best resume a person could put forward. Full stop. If he was applying to be the pastor 
of your church, he'd get the job. (laughs) If he was applying to be the Jewish theology professor, it's a no-brainer. If this was a purity contest, Paul would win every time. He was an insider. He had all the right education. He displayed the highest character and impeccable performance. If the Judaizers were looking for someone to have confidence in the outward works and observances that they're engaged in, Paul says, you guys think that you're pretty good, but if anybody has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, if anyone thinks that they would be good enough for God, it should be me. You know, that idea of being good enough for God is an idea that plagues our culture. The idea that you can somehow, through your good works and your resume, merit the entrance into God's presence is a plague. As you know, there are a lot of fascinating and appalling pieces of literature about the Holocaust. And one scene that haunts me is a picture from Auschwitz. And above the entryway to the concentration camp were the words, Arbeit macht frei. And the same stood above the concentration camp at Dachau. It means work makes you free. Work will liberate you and give you freedom. And as you know, it was a lie. It was a false hope. The Nazis made people believe that hard work would equal liberation, but the promised liberation was actually horrifying suffering and even death. Arbeit macht frei. One reason that phrase plagues me and should for the rest of us is that it is the spiritual lie of this age. It's a satanic lie. It's a religious lie. It's a false hope, an impossible dream for many people in the world. They believe that their good works will be great enough to outweigh their bad works, allowing them someday to stand before God in eternity and say, God, you owe me the right to enter into heaven. It's the hope of every false religion. Arbeit macht frei. Friends, the idea that good works will save you is rampant today. Some of you have been following Jesus for a long time and it might seem like an elementary truth, but if you walk through the sidewalk in the middle of town or the halls of the university or even the sanctuaries of many churches, you will hear a vast majority of people say that their good works will get them into heaven. Arbeit macht frei. 
But verse 4 says that if anyone has the right to be confident that his good works will get him into heaven, it's Paul. And yet, he indicates that those things are all the wrong credentials. And so what are the right ones? Paul's credentials on earth are so impressive, someone might look at him and say, this man's clearly on the road to heaven. His credentials are so impressive that he himself might take a look in the mirror and say, I've got it all together. The scale is tipped. The good works outweigh the bad. One side of the ledger far outweighs the other. I've achieved, I've accomplished, I've succeeded, and God is pleased. And I will continue until my dying day, and then heaven will be my reward, and I could be confident of that. But then he says in verse 7 and 8, something that flips the script. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. So imagine on a piece of paper with me, column, column, line right down the middle. And on one side, you are trying to figure out which is of the most value. And on the other side, you're comparing it to something else of value. And on the one side, you list the great things about yourself that you might present before God. And it's going to be a little bit different for all of us, probably. I wonder what they are for you. I wonder what the things are that you are most confident in about yourself. The things you're most proud of about yourself. The things that you would use to sell yourself to another person. Why they should like you why they should accept you, why they should commit themselves to you, why God should do the same. You might put in this calm the fact that you look great. <laughs> you might say, I've gone to church faithfully for years. You might say, I've been baptized. You might say, I've given at least 10% of my money in offering to the Lord. You might say that you've helped the widow across the street. You're generally a nice person. You stopped looking at porn years ago. And you got that part of your life sorted out. You make sure to give your kids, teachers at school, gift cards at every Christmas. And you don't forget the mailman or the hairdresser either. And maybe even the pastor. That's a joke. You've taught Sunday school. You've served in the youth group. You've attended a Bible study on a weekly basis. You help out whenever and wherever you can. Life's hard, life's busy, but I make myself available. You take the Lord's Supper regularly at church. You're good at singing, and you make sure to sing loudly when Pastor Reggie leads us. You taught your kids the things of God. You provided for your family. That's a pretty long list. That's more than seven that Paul listed. It includes things of religious significance, personal responsibility, personal character, and good morality. You'd look at this resume of somebody and you'd say, that's pretty good. That's a shoe-in for God. And all of the items of the list, when you add up 
that column would take up probably about a whole page if you provided any amount of detail. And on the other column, there is just one word. Christ. Which is more valuable? Which one would give you more confidence in standing before God? All of the things you've done, all of the elements of your character, all of your personal morality, and the fact that you're just a nice person. Or Christ. All of what is listed in the long list that is very positive, Paul says, is actually loss. It's actually loss in comparison to the other side of the balance sheet. Christ is more valuable. His work is more effective before God. And what Christ himself lost in his life by bearing sin on a cross of shame and dying as a criminal actually results in your gain. I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord, he says. Indeed, everything that you would think is valuable to God for the eternal benefit of yourself is nothing compared to the value of knowing Christ. And if you live this way, there will be loss for you. <laughs> and the loss is real. Paul says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And Paul did lose nearly everything for the sake of Christ. The sevenfold resume that is perfect in its effect well, he lost his social standing. He lost his personal notoriety and reputation. He undoubtedly lost a fairly comfortable lifestyle. And with that, he lost the chance for monetary gain. He lost his assets and he lost his prospects for a successful future by the standard of his peers. He lost it all. And what he lost was valuable in this world. Well, at least for another 40 years. But 40 years of value is rubbish. <laughs> it's like garbage compared to 100 billion years of value. He lost it all, <laughs> but he gained Christ. Friends, if you find Christ to be of the greatest value in this life, then you will lose something. I can't tell you what it will be. Some of you might lose as much as Paul did. Most of you will lose less. But what you gain is of infinitely greater value and worth. Some of you will lose friends as you gain Christ. 
because your lifestyle will change and it won't align with the interests of those friends any longer. Some of you might lose reputation. Some of you might lose career opportunities in a culture that's quickly moving away from a moral center, it's not surprising to hear that Christians who are either held back in their jobs or who walk away from their jobs because they cannot or will not engage in the immoral practices around them. That's a valuable loss. Some of our kids will lose future opportunity in a lot of ways because they're in a Christian family. If baseball or basketball or theater or any other extracurricular activities continue to do what they have been doing now for the last 15 years or so, impinging upon two hours a week, of all the hours in the week, the two hours a week that Christians get together and do the thing that's most important to them (laughs) as they worship God in the context of their community. And if parents actually have the courage to say, We've gained Christ, and he is the most important thing for us. He is infinitely more valuable than the future opportunity for basketball or football or theater or whatever it might be. Some of those opportunities could be lost. But the list goes on. I don't know what it will be for you. It will cost you something. It already has for most of you. I reckon that it will cost you comparatively less than those who have gone before you. It won't feel like it. It won't feel like less. But it most likely will be. When you follow Christ, you can say with confidence that the things that are of value in this world, though costly, are compared to rubbish because we've gained something greater. We can have confidence before God and confidence in this world through faith in Christ. There's a lot more we could say way down there on the practical level here about cost and about value and about aspiration. But let's move toward the source of our true confidence. Paul says in Philippians 3, 8, and 9, listen, indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. How does the ledger of good deeds result in what it does? How can the seven points of external righteousness on the left column be overshadowed by the simple name of Jesus in the right column? And the answer is that righteousness comes through faith in Christ. Paul says that it comes from God and faithful obedience of Jesus to take the cup of suffering the weight of sins of the world to pay the penalty for them on the cross, the faithfulness of Jesus and our faith in him alone. And verse 9 says it gives us the right standing, righteousness before God. No good deeds, no religious rituals, no family name, no confidence in the flesh. 
only Christ. We can have confidence before God through faith in Christ. Friend, I want you to know this, but I want you to feel it deep in your soul that your standing before God is solely dependent on Christ. That is what gives you confidence to carry through after you've fallen into sin again. That is what gives you confidence to know that God isn't somehow torturing you when you have family dynamics that get increasingly difficult. That is what gives you confidence to know that God has not abandoned you when a medical diagnosis comes. That is how you can move from this day until your dying day and not waver because your confidence is not in you. It's in the immovable one. You can have confidence before God because of Christ. He gives you everything that you need. He pays the penalty. He gives you standing and purity and confidence. He is the resume. (laughs) And that's it. There's many ways in which this bears itself out in real life. We've talked about last week some of the access to God and the legalisms and the different viewpoints of a a kind of a heavily legalistic background and a Roman Catholic background and how these things really matter because the center point of this is a defining moment of the Protestant Reformation, number one, but more than that, it is the center point of the gospel. William Tyndale and his life illustrated this. Tyndale was an English reformer who was responsible for translating the Bible into English. Martin Luther translated the Bible into German for the common language of Germany and part of Europe. Tyndale simultaneously was translating into English. Until then, the vast majority of common folk in the English-speaking world had no access to read God's word for themselves. And so enraptured by the infinite value of knowing Christ and so desirous that others would know him as well, Tyndale worked diligently in hiding in Antwerp, Belgium to produce translation of books of the Bible that would then head to the newly invented printing press and be distributed throughout England. And the gospel was taking root. As his work continued, efforts to silence him increased because he was caught between Emperor Charles of France, who was known to be the defender of the Catholic faith, and King Henry VIII in England, who was still trying to convince the Pope that he was a Catholic. And so they both wanted this reformer to be caught and killed. Tyndale was of the highest intelligence, of the good stock, of solid reputation, but his work that spread the gospel through the printing press and the word of God was threatening the power establishment and he counted everything on his resume as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. In 1535, they found him. A plot was formed He was ambushed, 
tied with ropes and placed in the gloomy castle of Vilvoord for 18 months. Suffering from illness and shivering through night and day, late in the autumn of 1535, he wrote his short work, which was entitled, Faith Alone Justifies Before God. (laughs) He knew he was going to die. He wanted to make sure people knew why he died. Historian Brian Edwards tells that finally the long-awaited trial began. Tyndale had been in the castle for 18 months, and now everything was set. A long list of charges was drawn up, and the first and greatest charge among them against Tyndale was he maintained that faith alone justifies. The second He maintained that to believe in the forgiveness of sins and to embrace the mercy offered in the gospel was enough for salvation. Third, he averred that human traditions cannot bind the conscience except where they neglect might cause occasional scandal. Fourth, he denied the freedom of the will. Fifth, he denied that there's a purgatory. Sixth, he affirmed that neither the Virgin Mary nor the saints pray for us in their own person. Seventh, he asserted that neither the Virgin Mary nor the saints should be invoked by us in prayer. And so the list continued. And in early August of 1536, the reformer was condemned as a heretic under Catholic council. A few days later, the pageant of casting him out of the Catholic church took place. And in the town square, a crowd gathered, The great doctors and dignitaries assembled in due pomp and array. They took their seats on the high platform. Tyndale was led out wearing priest's robes and was made to kneel. And his hands were scraped with a knife or a piece of glass to symbolize having lost the benefits of the anointing oil with with which he was consecrated to the priesthood. The bread and the wine of the mass were placed in his hands and at once withdrawn. This done, he was ceremoniously stripped of his priestly vestments, reclothed as a layman, and handed over to the attorney for secular punishment. He was sent back to the castle. Then early in the month of October in 1536, William Tyndale was led out of the castle toward the southern gate of the town. The sun had barely risen above the horizon when he arrived at the open space and looked out over the crowd of onlookers eagerly jostling for a good view. Tyndale stood immovable, his keen eyes gazing toward the common people, and a silence fell over the crowd as they watched the prisoner's lean form and thin, tired face. His lips moved with a final impassioned prayer that echoed around the place of execution. Lord, open the King of England's eyes. His feet were bound to a stake, iron chain fastened around his neck, and the hemp noose was placed at his throat. Only the Anabaptists and the lapsed heretics were burnt alive. Tyndale was spared that ordeal. 
but piles of brushwood and logs were heaped around him. The executioner came up behind the stake and with all his force snapped down upon the noose. And within seconds, Tyndale was strangled. The attorney stepped forward, placed a lighted torch to the tinder, and the great men and commoners sat back to watch the fire burn. Not until his charred form hung limply on the chain did an officer break out the staple of the chain with his halberd, allowing the, ball, the body to f- fall into the glowing heat of the fire. More brushwood was piled on top while the commoners sat back watching the flames and marveling at the patient sufferance of Master Tyndale at the time of his execution. He was prepared to lose his standing. He was prepared to lose his reputation, and he did. He was prepared even to lose his life. Why? Because those things were less valuable. Of the greatest value and unimaginable worth to William Tyndale was Christ. His resume, as great as it was, was rubbish compared to being found in Christ. All the way up to the moment the noose was pulled upon him, his confidence was in Christ. Prepared for life, prepared for death. He knew what the most important thing was. He understood what was of the greatest value. And you can too. We can have confidence, friends, in this life. And we can have confidence before God through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we're tempted. We're tempted every day to place our confidence in ourselves. We are tempted with high regularity to find our value in what we do. God, we go through life sometimes with a lack of confidence and other times with false confidence. Today, continue to bolster our confidence in only one word on the right side of the column. And not just the word, but the name. And not just the name, but the person. Our confidence is in Christ. We long for the day when we can stand before you, not in fear, but in confidence. And we look forward to seeing him face to face and expressing our joy that is made complete. And so we worship him and we follow him faithfully as we move toward that day. Amen and amen.